Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank, with locations throughout the state, including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world. From Mansers on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge, we're out to lunch with editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report, Stephanie Regal. It's business Baton Rouge style. Hi, I'm Stephanie Regal. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Local retailers are the backbone of the economy in any market. They also give a place its sense of place and make it unique, setting it apart from the next big exit off the interstate. Baton Rouge is fortunate to have several much-loved local retailers who in some cases have spent generations serving the market with quality products. One such business owner is with me today, Manuel Martinez of Martinez Custom Clothiers. Martinez is a well-known fixture in Baton Rouge for his sartorial style and for his corporate boulevard storefront, which sells Manuel's custom-made suits, shirts, and sports coats, as well as ties, shoes, and other men's fashion accessories. Manuel doesn't just dress the gentleman in Baton Rouge, his clients come from all over the world. Pretty impressive for a guy who started out thinking he wanted to be a veterinarian and in fact went all the way through vet school before deciding he was in the wrong field and heading to New York where he learned his trade. That was more than 30 years ago. Manuel, you've come a long way. Thank you for agreeing to share your story with us today on Out to Lunch. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie. It's my pleasure to be here today. And with me and Manuel is Tom Olind, owner of Olin's Furniture, a family-owned business that has been serving Baton Rouge since the company was founded by Tom's grandfather more than 120 years ago. Tom came up in the business working under his father, the late J.B. Olind, and has helped it grow and prosper amidst much competition, which in the past came from other brick-and-mortar stores and today comes from the Internet and national chains as well. Olin's has its bases in South Louisiana covered, however. In addition to the five area furniture and mattress stores that bear its name, Olin's also owns and operates all seven Ashley stores in Louisiana, including one here in Baton Rouge that it acquired just a few months ago. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks for joining us on Out to Lunch. Thanks, Stephanie. I'm excited to be here. This ought to be fun. Well, great. Manuel, I want to start with you. There, there are a few professions I can think of that are more diametrically opposed to being a veterinarian. <laughs> you know, you think animals dirty and smelly and, and your clothes are so beautiful. How did you decide that you were in the wrong field and, and come to this decision all those years ago? Well, grow, growing up in Mexico, you had to do what your parents tell you to do. Okay. And my father wanted me to become a veterinarian and, and another sister to be a doctor and a brother to be a canon and whatnot. So we were told to do that and you didn't question. Well, when I came to the United States, I was very fortunate that a family in Lake Charles took me in and they treated me like their child. And the way they entertained, it was at their home and, and they would wear uh, dark suits the men, the ladies' cocktail dresses, and oftentimes they would have black tie-fers at their home. Wow. And I said, wow, I like, yes, that's a wow. <laughs> I like this kind of life, and I might never be wealthy, but I, I like this. So that's where my passion began. Uh, Interesting. And then I, pers I pursue it later. 
you were fortunate to fall in with the right folks in Lake Charles, no yes. question. So you, and your dad took it okay when you told him that you were switching <laughs> professions? <laughs> no, that was, that was kind of like a slap in the face for him, for me to disobey him. And he said, well, you're your own. And it was also a risk because, I mean, I'm sure to be a, you know, a fashion designer and retailer was not a sure bet. It wasn't like vet school or med school or something. No, many people told me, what do you want to do that? You're crazy. But you've got to follow, follow your dreams and you've got to follow your passion. And if, you, if you're not passionate about anything, it's going to be very hard for you in life to make, to make the proper living if you just do it for a check. Because once you follow your passion, you get better at it. That's such good advice. Tom, were you passionate about furniture? Did you have much choice, given that you were third generation? Uh, I'm fourth generation. A fourth. Yeah, my great-grandfather started. <laughs> but uh, no, to be honest with you, I was not passionate about furniture. I sort of backed into it. I was one of seven children. I was right in the middle. I graduated with a journalism degree, and I enrolled in the uh, MBA program at LSU. And my father needed some help in the summer in the credit department, so I did that. And that's where I really got the passion for it. Uh, my, I guess my father was my mentor. In many ways, he was a, an outstanding guy, very ethical, very smart, great work ethic. And so I, I tried it in large part early on to try to mimic some of the things that, that uh, he did. But the furniture industry is a cottage industry. There's a lot of small businesses, a lot of small manufacturers. The first a retailer to cross the billion dollar threshold in furniture it was probably less than 20 years ago. Really? The first manufacturer to cross it was probably about the same time. And so, uh, where we're not a huge company, we have about 12 stores, we are in the top 100 of largest stores in the, you know, the U.S. So, it's relationship selling, it's family business, a lot of, you know, second, third, fourth generation, both at the retail level at the wholesale level, mm -hmm. the reps. Uh, so you get to where you know people all across the country. It's a fun business. And when you say in the top 100, does that include just the Olins or the Olins and the Ashleys? The, the whole, the our, whole yeah, our whole company. The whole company. Right. Wow, right. fantastic. Now, were you the only one from your generation that went into it, or did some of your siblings also join you? Well, what happened was my father, uh, he sort of backed into it as well. He was an attorney. He graduated. From, he came back from World War II. He was a combat veteran on the front lines in Germany, came back, and, and at that time, you, you didn't have to have an undergraduate degree to go into professional. He had a couple of years of undergraduate at LSU, then he, he went to uh, World War II, came back, went right into law school, got his law degree, started practicing, and his father got ill. And so he uh, kind of backed into it, and, and the company was not on the greatest, I guess, financial footing, because his father had been ill with cancer for a while, but he pretty much turned it around, got it on a firm footing, and uh, in, in my case, I was the fourth of seven children. I have two brothers that are attorneys, one that's a doctor, two sisters with graduate degrees, and one with an undergraduate degree. So they all had their own, doing their own things. And dad and mom never pressured us to go into the business. And like I say, I sort of backed into it, found that I really enjoyed it, and saw it as an opportunity, you know. And then 15 years later, my brother, one of my brothers that was practicing law came in we had a beverage distributorship, a beer and for, that covered about six and a half parishes, and he ultimately ran that. And then after 100 years or so, we sold it in January of last year. Fantastic. And, uh, so it, it's been great. I've, I've enjoyed it. Now, everybody needs furniture. Not everybody needs custom 
designed clothes. Manuel, particularly today when you know, people wear their yoga pants to the airport and the pajamas to the Apple store. I mean, how do you make people, who is your clientele? And are there still people out there that dress as nicely as you and, and Tom both dressed for me today? Well, I'm very grateful that you're still the 1% care about the way that they look and dress. As you say, Stephanie, our society has come very, very relaxed about everything. You get into, you get into the planes and you see the Literally, they were in pajamas. It's kind of like, who can dress the worst? <laughs> it's but, awful. But Yes, it is. But fortunately, the, the 1% of the population still care and understand that appearance matters. Mm-hmm. A good example, the CEO of Facebook at the hearings, Mark Soderberg, 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 Zuckerberg's here, Zuckerberg. right? I had to take a double take. I never see him in a suit. In time. Right. When he took Facebook public in Wall Street, he was wearing a hoodie, T-shirt, and blue jeans. So what does that tell you? Yeah. That when your reputation is on the line, you better suit up. So how do you market to that 1%? And who are they? They're not just here in Baton Rouge. No. The, uh, it's referrals, clients telling other other friends about me. For example, I had a gentleman that drove in today from uh, the Mandeville area. Mm-hmm. And I asked him the question, Does, how do you hear about me? He said, some of your clients in New Orleans. And he drove, he drove in. But so we're very fortunate that in, two, in 2000, a client of mine that was going to go public went to Goldman Sachs and he was wearing our clothes. And some of the VPs at Goldman That's Sachs nice. <laughs> like it and said, "Who is your tailor?" And he thought they were, he thought they were kidding. Him. He said, uh, "In Louisiana, he said, seriously, seriously." They thought he had the clothes made in, in Savile Row, which I did some apprentice work in Savile Row okay. in England. Make a long story short, I get a call. Next time, this gentleman from Goldman Sachs was in, in, in New Orleans. Gentleman from Goldman Sachs, yes. right? Yeah, Tim Casey. Tim Casey, that's his name. I still remember his name, and we still. He, he retired now, but he was a client of two, two years ago. He asked me to make his clothes. I did. I took him to New York. And he, then he introduced me to several of the VIPs. Lo and behold, next I have a showroom in New York. So we opened a showroom in New York in right, 2002, 2002. So we made a lot of clothes for the people at the hedge funds, uh, investment bankers in New York. Most people don't know this, but we did that between 2002 to two. And we still do, but not, not the same because... When Wall Street went down in 2008, I believe, September 2008, I remember. That was, like big, <laughs> that was your client base, that right? That was there. my client base. So you never have to put, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You've you got go. to be diversified. But that gave us, that gave us world now reputation, and people mm-hmm. would fly from different parts of the country and in the world to come see us in New York. Well, you're a, a, you know, a very high margin, low volume business. How expensive do you have to be to make the numbers work? How much does a custom suit cost? And is well, it something that the average person in Baton Rouge could they, have they, if they wanted? It, it, of course. If they, they didn't can. wear their pajamas it, to the if, Apple of, store. of course they can. Because today, most, a lot of executives are not wearing suits and a lot of people are not wearing suits. So they don't have, to, like in the 80s, they don't have to have a suit for every day of the week. So they, why don't they spend your money in quality? And to answer your question, we, we start, we, our starting price is 2750 from there on up. 
2750. From there on up. Okay. From there on up. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. I'm talking to Manuel Martinez of Martinez Custom Clothiers and Tom Olind of Olin's Furniture. Tom, you sort of have the market covered with Ashley's and Olin's, you know, two different business models, right? Right. That's correct. We, uh, you know, we try to appeal, I guess, to the uh, a kind of a broad swath, the 70% in the middle. Okay. We feel like uh, at Ashley, there the, it's a nationally known brand. It's the largest um, a manufacturing retailer, privately owned, do five billion dollars in sales, and uh, it's it's value furniture, good looks at a good price. There's no special order opportunities. It's a proprietary brand, so there's you know not, not other options, but it's such a large line that there's something for just about everybody. That Olin's. We probably carry a hundred different brands, and we special order, and we kind of feel like we almost go from soup to nuts. And just like Manuel said, in the furniture industry is in a very disruptive period. You know, with the internet and everything, the high-end guys are suffering really bad in the furniture industry because um, so much of the industry is now made offshore. All of the case goods, that's bedroom and dining room, and a large percentage of the higher-end upholstery is made off and they'll knock off high-end lines like Sentry at much lower prices. And so that's why, you you know, you don't see, you know, stores like the old carriage house stores mm-hmm. like Karn Myers or Stomas is changing. And, right. and um, so, so there's a great opportunity to really give uh, high value, high style at a lower price. And at Olin's, we carry, like I say, a, a number of brands. And so we feel like, you know, the, the doctor or the high-end person can afford to to travel out of state somewhere, we have something for them. We may not have their formal antique dining room, but we we have something for them. And uh, and then also the beginner price point. Sure. So. How big are, are y'all's companies, and how, how many employees do y'all both have, respectively? Well, we had 425, maybe when we had our beverage distributorship. We sold it, about 325 were the furniture side. And... Uh, and we probably ballooned up a little bit after the floods, you know, to, to cover that. Now we're very consciously trying to get lean and mean and efficient because, uh, you know, so many people were taken out of the market after the flood. So uh, presently, I think we're 282 okay. employees. And what about you? No, he, he, here in Baton Rouge, six. Here in Baton Rouge, six. Six, six. Okay. But then in, the, in New York, you know, the people that do my work, the workroom that I use is 16. 16. So, so it's, it's, a small, it's a small niche, and, and it's getting smaller and smaller because we can't get the craftsmanship. We can't get the craftsmanship. And really? Yes. So uh, they, it's, it's hard to find the people to, to do people. The, yes, the people, yeah. People are just people. not trained in how to make fine clothes by hand? The, the, I think that today the younger generation, they want instant gratification. And this, learning the trade, and... It's not different than spending time becoming a doctor. Mm-hmm. You have to, you got to go, to, you got to go to school, and then you go to medical school, and then you do an internship, and then you do whatever. And they hear the same thing, and they don't want to put the time. Do you actually sew also? Do you do no, any no. of that yourself, or no, did you ever, no. or you just design? No. When and I start, when I started working, I was working with a tailor, and it's funny you should ask that. I was working with a tailor, learning how to how to sew, and learning how to put the garments together. And after about two weeks, he told me, he said, you're not going to make it behind the sewing machine. <laughs> he said, but you need to go. You need to go. And I, he said, no. He said, I said, you fire me? He said, no. He 
He said, you need to go to design in the school. He said, you have a good eye how to put things together, mm-hmm. and you don't have the, the patience to sit down and do all the detail work. The little details. And I didn't, I took it with a grain of salt. I stayed another month, and then all of a sudden, I was running his tailor shop, waiting on the clients, doing the fittings, pick, help the clients pick another their clothes, tell them this is the, the sort of silhouette that you need, this is the color that you need, this is how you put things together. And he said, you see, I told you so. So I was out of there. That's, that's a great advice. And, and you went and, and yes, got a degree right, in, in fashion it, it, design? Or? When, no, I, I, I studied some with the greatest designers like Lou Mouse. I don't know. He made the clothes for the Beatles. He used to make clothes for who is who in the world. Wow. Out of Toronto, Canada. So interesting. What a great story. I want to switch gears for a moment, gentlemen, because this is a part of the show that we call another great idea. So maybe you've got a friend who's always telling you about an idea, a job to apply for, a guy you should have a cup of coffee with, or a great investment opportunity that you should jump on, and you can take the advice, and it may turn out to be great. It might turn out to be a disaster. You can dismiss it and maybe wish that you hadn't. Uh, Can you think of an example or a situation like this? Did you take the advice, and how did it turn out? Uh, sure, I can. Uh, um, back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, the, there used to be a, a strong distribution network down in New Orleans. And so uh, we bought sometimes appliances, electronics, furniture down there, and I'd go down there fairly frequently. And, and when I had free time, I would go uh, shop the, the bigger stores down there to kind of see what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, Universal, you know, Kirschman's. Uh, Compass, Herbert's Mints, all these stores, and uh, and the the skions of these different stores typically were the old. I thought they were old guys. They were probably about my age at the time, you know, in their right. 60s. And I, I remember one of the things they told me, and it's something I'd always heard from my father that cash is king. And uh, you know, in the big ticket where it's very seasonal and the economy gets slow, we get a recession, people kind of pull back. If you're not highly leveraged, you don't have a whole lot of debt, you can withstand withstand those uh, slow times. Uh, so I always thought uh, that was very good advice. The other thing that they always told me that when things get bad or, or slow, like, you know, we've had the property values go down and the economy gets slow, recession, is that, yes, you need to look at expenses, you need to cut expenses, but don't cut advertising. Hmm. That that's, You want to keep that going because that's your opportunity to gain, to gain market share. And that has yeah. proven true over That's the years. proven true to me uh, time and time again. So those, those were little things, and I could tell you a whole bunch of other things, but the, but those always have stuck with me. Good advice. What about you, Manuel? Well, I, I can think, I don't know if it's funny, but to me today it is. When my wife's from Louisiana, she sort of wanted to stay here in Louisiana. So in 1984, I looked in New Orleans in that particular summer. Mm-hmm. And it was raining so much, I came back to pick up my car. I almost, the car flooded. I said, no, I don't want to do this. And I had met, when I was taking some design courses, I met this gentleman, Richard Brooks, who had gone to LSU, and I met him in, at school. And he had one of the greatest couture shops in Dallas. And he was making clothes for Nancy Reagan. He was making clothes for uh, the, uh, the Hunts. Wow. Who, is, who is who in Dallas, ladies? Okay. Was richest clients that he catered to. So he saw something of me, he said, he said that, look, said, you don't want to be in Louisiana, especially in Baton Rouge, <laughs> because Baton Rouge prides themselves in dressing bad. No disrespect to me. <laughs> <laughs> so come to Dallas, went to Dallas, I worked with him, and I said, boy, this is great. 
mm-hmm. where we take them to the mansion. I don't know if you know the mansion, Turtle right. Creek. Right, sure, sure. you never seen so many Rolls Royce and, and Bentleys in my life. So I said, yeah, I like this. So I told my wife, we're going to move to Dallas. But, but Richard and I could not agree that after five years, I wanted to buy part of the business. He just wanted me to work for it. So when, when I'm sitting there looking at the U.S. today, I saw Baton Rouge as being one of the largest, one of the fastest cities growing in the United States. Mm-hmm. It was Austin, something else, San Antonio, and then Baton Rouge. It was in the top five. Wow. I said, whoa. And I called a friend that I had here by the name of Fred Townsend, who owned it uh, at the time at, at, um, at an advertising agency. And he said, Manuel, you need to look at Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is growing. You're near New Orleans. And boom, boom. I came here in, in 84, moved. Well, two years later, you know what happened. Mm-hmm. The crash. Right. Oh. Everybody was moving out of town. Even my friend moved out of town. <laughs> so, so I said, I said no, I'm going to stay here, and it would work. And it would, there were lean times. But again, they, I thank the people of Baton Rouge that, Matter of fact, some of them are still alive. They steal my clients, and we yeah. talk about that. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that. Would it have been easier in New Orleans? Do you think being just a bigger, more cosmopolitan well, it, it, city, yes, yes, fashion-wise? Yes. But at the time, you know, Baton Rouge, everybody dressed, and we had more, especially men's store, than we do today. In Baton Todd Rouge, Garland had three. Sure. Uh, Bobby Dewey had one not too far from here. Con Turner. Mm. Very yeah, fine oh, store. Yeah. Uh, Arthur Aurelian, another one. And uh, then the Barnett Brothers, Mayors. So we have today, you don't have that many men's specialty stores. That's true. So that tells you that even though we had a, a, a smaller population, we had a, a bigger, bigger market. Yeah. What has online competition done to your business model? And, and has how has the Internet helped, if at all? Well... You know, to uh, Manuel's po- uh, point, uh, you know, the, the herd is thinning out, you know. There used to be 45 to 50, uh, we have a local furniture association members. Now there's just seven. that many in Baton Rouge. Now there's just seven or eight, and I always kid them. We have a meeting now about twice a year, and I say, I just want to be the last one standing, you know. <laughs> but uh, the Internet's, uh, you know, the, the, the hackneyed phrase, the chickens have come home to roost. They've, it's come home to roost. We see it every day. Customers come in with their phones, showrooming, and uh, uh, you know sometimes challenging prices. Our our um, philosophy is to meet the price or beat the price, uh, assuming all the everything's the same, mm-hmm. same you know item, same service. Uh, but you know you're you're uh, competing globally now. You know it's it's not only the uh, shelter magazines the you know, Z Gallery and, and uh, Pottery Born and all those kinds that have really nice catalogs, our house, but uh, also, you know, Amazon, Amazon. And people are really uh, buying sofas They They do. Online. Uh, you know, mattresses, you know, I wouldn't buy a mattress online, but people do, Casper, Purple and all this. They've even figured a way to suck the air out of inner springs and roll them up and ship them to somebody's house. But, but um you know, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's not going away. It's here to stay. And so what you have to focus on is giving better personal service, giving a better shopping experience, because they're not going to get a great shopping experience, you know, with the computer online. Uh, and you have to be competitive price-wise yeah. and, and, and selection-wise. And so, you know, we have a, a pretty robust uh, online presence. We have a, we do sell online some, 
you know, but uh, it, it's something that we grapple with every day, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Manuel does too. It's in pretty much you, in every industry. Do you do online business, Manuel, or is it mostly, like you say, word-of-mouth referrals? No, in a sense that people would buy online from me. I mean, if it's a, a tie, yes, or, or, or perfume, something like that. Mm-hmm. What, what it does, it gives me exposure, but, but, the only, but the Internet has not hurt me. If anything, it has helped me. The reason being is because there are so many people now putting everything online as far as so you can take your measurements and we make it for you. Yeah. And when, when, it, when it comes back to the individual, nine out of ten times, it doesn't fit. It's terrible stuff. So they call me to ask them to help them. If they're locals, I help them. And I say, you don't want, there's something that you don't really want to buy online. You, know, you can buy, buy a pair of shorts or a pair of jeans, but you don't want to buy a custom suit online. So it has helped me tremendously that way. So it has not taken away. And another thing is about the feel of the fabric that people like to put them in their hands. Yeah. And you can't get that in the internet. And how long does it take to get a suit made? If you're a first timer, it's going to take me anywhere from six to eight weeks. Really? Later, once, once uh, we have identified the way you like to be fitted, the kind of fabrics you like, and adjust your pattern, then we could do it in four or five weeks. Mm-hmm. But I always ask, bare, bare bones, six weeks. Okay. There's some, there's some things you can't rush. Right, you know, right. Can't rush. No, I get that. Tom, what kind of advertising have you found works for you at, at Oakland? Well, we, well, we do uh, a little bit of, uh, of everything. You know, we uh, print, radio, TV, online, billboards, um, now we've we've definitely shifted uh, how we the print is a lot less uh, Im- important than it used to be. Yeah. I mean we still do some in the Baton Rouge uh, market. We do a lot more online social media. I mean we went from zero. We're probably probably twenty something percent of our total budget. Uh, television's probably you know the biggest mm-hmm. piece of the pie for sure. Uh, radio is kind of event driven. We're running a tent sale or something like that. We find that radio helps. You know, for that sort of thing, uh, billboards is kind of to me more directional. If you open a new store or you want to get, you know, people direct them to your store if it's at, not in a A plus location. Uh, but we do a little bit of everything, okay. so you know, a lot of grassroots stuff too. Well, Tom O'Lind and Manuel Martinez, it's great to have locally owned small businesses like yours keeping our city unique while also keeping our economy humming. So good luck in your continued success, and thank you so much for sharing your stories today with us on Out to Lunch. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. My guests today on Out to Lunch have been Manuel Martinez of Martinez Custom Clothiers and Tom O'Lind of O'Lind's Furniture. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Peter Raschuti. And our Baton Rouge business consultants are Charlie D'Agostino and Ann Edelman. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on our website. It's batonrouge.la and on our It's Baton Rouge Facebook page. These photos were taken by Carrie Hosford. And you can see more of Carrie's work at carriehosford.com. You can hear this show and past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts and at itsbatonrouge.la. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsbatonrouge.la and WRKF 89.3 FM. I'm Stephanie Regal. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Mansur's for more business Baton Rouge style on Out to Lunch. 
Out to Lunch is recorded live over lunch at Mansur's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge. Mansur's is open for lunch daily from 11 to 2, for dinner nightly, and for brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. Mitchell's music is available wherever great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank, with locations throughout the state, including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shewart & Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world.